Well, good morning, One Life Community Church. Thank you for joining us this morning for Easter Sunday. It has been so great to worship with you. Thanks for sticking with us as we try to get everything set. We hope you've been able to engage and worship and celebrate the risen Christ today. Um, thank you to you, those of you who are our guests, maybe joining us for the first time. We appreciate you choosing to be with us out of all the things you could be doing today. Thanks for celebrating with us. I trust that you found our online church page on our website. If not, just go to onelifeseattle.org slash onelife-church. There you'll find resources for kids, youth, our connection card, our live prayer app. Um, you name it. It has all the details about Easter Jam as well, which is this very cool at-home experience we created so you can continue to celebrate Easter from your own home after the service. So want to make sure you get that page all set up. If you're new with us, since March, we have entered into a season in the church calendar called Lent, which literally means springtime. And it's traditionally a time of preparation leading up to Easter. So imagine the process of growth for a flower. Without the progression of what happens below the ground during the winter and all the hard work the seeds go through, the flowers can't develop and flourish as they should. And so in the same way, Lent is meant to be the church's springtime. A time when out of the darkness of sin's winter, a repentant, empowered people emerges. So Lent is intended to be a time of practice and testing, a time of preparation for new life, renewal, new possibilities, and for transformation. And as a church, as a community, as a family, together during this COVID-19 pandemic, we have journeyed in our day-to-day -day life. We've waited. We've hoped We've cried out for this day to come. And although this isn't how we normally celebrate Easter, today is the day we've been waiting for. Resurrection Sunday is here. Now, since this season began, we've been going through a sermon series entitled, This Must Be Stronger Than That. And if you're here with us for the first time, or if you've missed some of our last teachings, don't worry, you'll be able to connect with today's conversation. No problem. The title of this series comes from a quote from a famous pastor and theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who lived during the time of World War II. And as a way to combat Hitler and the Nazi movement, Bonhoeffer started this secret seminary, a school for people who would take the gospel seriously as a countercultural community for Jesus. They believed Christians could stand firm against the pressures of the day by engaging certain practices in order to follow Jesus, no matter the cost. And as you can imagine, this took some serious commitment and life was put at risk. Now, some thought these practices were too extreme. And as the story goes, one of Bonhoeffer's friends came to visit and suggested that he tone it down a bit. So Bonhoeffer takes his friend in this boat, rows across this river, takes him to the top of this hill where they could see a Nazi training camp in the distance with fighter planes and soldiers preparing for battle. And he points to this little secret school and then points at Hitler's troops and weapons and all. And in this prophetic contrast, Bonhoeffer says this, meaning the people of God and how they live out their faith in Jesus must be stronger than that, referring to the discipline of the ways of the world around us. See, Bonhoeffer believed that as Christians, our commitment to follow the ways of Jesus in our day-to-day -day life should cause those who don't believe in God to question their unbelief. That we are to be ambassadors of the love and grace of God for all people. 
So each week we've looked at different practices designed to engage God more in our day-to-day life, all of which with the hope that our actions would invite others to see the beautiful effects of the gospel expressed in Holy Spirit-empowered people. Now, some of the things we discussed over the series has been worship being stronger than idolatry, truth being stronger than lies, grieving being stronger than dismissing, hospitality being stronger than fear, commitment being stronger than comfort, celebration being stronger than cynicism. Today, we are talking about the idea of love being stronger than hate, which fits perfectly with the meaning of Easter and the resurrection of Jesus. So before we get started, though, let me pause and let's open our time with some prayer. Father, Son, Spirit, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your unconditional love that we celebrate this morning. A perfect example of what it looks like to love all, no matter what. You've done that for each and every one of us. You've done that for anyone who's listening. You've done that for all humanity. You rose from the dead. You conquered the grave, and we celebrate that this morning. We pray that you would help us to hear from you, no matter where we're at. And we pray that we would respond however you invite us to. We pray this all in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, To get at this idea of love being stronger than hate, I want us to start by looking at one of Jesus' most radical teachings. It comes from the Sermon on the Mount in Luke chapter 6, starting with verse 27. It says this, But to you who are listening, I say, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, Do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Now with that, if you think about what we do with the words hate and love, it's pretty interesting. Because if we're being honest, we use these words so much in so many ways, in so many contexts, that both these words get abused in their usage to the point where they've really lost their meaning. So for example, hate has various levels. I call surface and deep hate. And nowadays, surface hate can look like a lot of things. We might say we hate being stuck in our homes, or we hate having to wear a mask. We hate doing chores. But hate in relational terms these days typically means if you disagree with me, you hate me. Or if you disapprove of my choices or my behaviors, you hate me. In a sense, as if we don't kind of get to disagree or disapprove because our default cultural understanding is if we do, then we're hated. And so you might even have conversations with people sometimes who say, why do you hate me? And you respond saying, I don't hate you. And they say, well, but you disapprove of my behaviors. 
which that may be true, right? Doesn't mean I hate you. But nowadays, even if that is true, for many, our identities are so fragile that this is how we receive the idea of disapproval and disagreement. We see it as hate. Now, of course, there's a deeper sense of hate and usage of the word hate, right? There's evil racial hate crimes, shootings, discriminations. And let's not forget the evil that is pineapple on pizza, right? These are evil actions that are done out of deep hate. Now, although the pineapple is funny, we need to recognize that we abuse the term love as well, right? There's surface love and there's deep love. And surface love can be used for virtually anything. I love that song. I love Adidas. I love the Godfather movies. I love bread. I love coffee, especially from Cafe Javasti. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love God. How can all these be used in the same way? Surely saying I love my wife versus I love coffee must mean something different, right? But that's the thing. Even our understanding of love has been abused to the point where it's hard to find its real meaning. And we need more examples of deep love. And our society is desperately in need of a way to fight against all forms of hate that seem to be all around us. It's aching for examples of people responding to deep hate with deep love. And so some examples of where deep love shows up or not can be seen in how we feel about things like ISIS, for example. How do you feel about those people who've gone into schools and shot innocent people? How do you feel about violent abusers? Or thinking back to Bonhoeffer's time, how would you have felt about Hitler? Can you find love for these people? You see, this is where deep love comes into play. Now, the Bible talks about love in many ways, but the most amazing way is what's called agape love. 1 John 3, 1 says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are, with an exclamation point. You see, agape love is fascinating. This is my definition of it. Agape love is other-centered, sacrificial care. Other-centered in that it's not about me, sacrificial, and that it will cost something, and the result of this will be the other feeling absolutely cared for. And during this pandemic, this is what our church needs. This is what our culture needs. This is what our community, our family, our friends, this is what we all need. Other-centered, sacrificial care. St. Augustine said it this way, many have learned how to offer the other cheek, but do not know how to love him by whom they were struck. Right? That's another kind of love altogether. And so when we take our Luke passage, it comes from Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, and it's Jesus issuing a corrective to the rabbis of the day who drew a false conclusion from Leviticus 19.18 that says this, You uh, shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You see, the rabbis argued that the term neighbor was defined by that phrase, the children of your people, in verse 2. But Jesus, however, 
demonstrates that our enemies are to be included in that category as well. And so, so the Jewish people of the day would say, we will love and care for our people and everyone inside that group, but anyone outside of this was seen as an enemy. And as a result, we have no obligation to show any love towards them. And this is the same way most of us see the world and others as well, especially if they disagree with us or disapprove of something. They're not in our world anymore. Author Preston Sprinkle, in his book, Fight, A Christian Case for Nonviolence, which is a fascinating book altogether, puts it this way. So, who is our enemy? As much as I would like to draw boundaries around enemy love, Jesus doesn't. There's nothing in the context that limits the meaning of enemy. The Greek word for enemy is often used in the broadest sense to include religious, political, and personal enemies. There's nothing in Jesus' words that restricts the meaning of enemy to certain types of people. Differently, theologian John Scott says it beautifully clear. He says this, our neighbor includes our enemy. It's like a mic drop. So when Jesus says to love our enemy or to love our neighbor, he's blowing up any boundaries we have around this so that everyone, including our enemies, is included. It means that we are to love all. Now, back in Jesus' day, there were two primary ways of responding to our enemies, and they're going to sound familiar today. The first is aggressive retaliation. When an enemy comes at you, you would use any means necessary to fight back, right? And for many, this is the picture they had of what the Messiah would do when he returned. He would utterly destroy their enemies. And this is basically what the zealots were all about. It was violence returning violence. Now, the other primary way people responded to their enemies was what's called passive victimhood. This was people who would basically say, what can we do? Right? I guess this is God's will that we suffer. God is God. God could stop this. It's not stopping. So God must want us to suffer, and God wants us to be victims. And we both have responded in these ways. We do this all the time when we're faced with opposition. But neither of these opposition is options is what Jesus is saying should be our response. Right? Jesus very clearly says, don't be violent, and it doesn't show signs of any passivity. What's happening is Jesus is teaching a transformative vision of love. Jesus sought to establish a countercultural, counter Maccabean, non Roman, anti Canaanite kingdom whose citizens would embody a not of this world reign over the earth. Jesus' sermon is more than a personal ethic, a way in which individuals can be better people. Rather, the sermon is intended to reconfigure God's new community, to mold his people into a visibly different kingdom in the face of all other imposter kingdoms. Or in Jesus' own words, we are to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, a public display of a different way. Isn't that amazing? Preston continues and goes on to say this. The sermon is a definitive charter for the life of the new covenant community. And through it, Jesus seeks to sculpt countercultural masterpieces, citizens of the great king, to embody a different society and disclose a different God. 
We should expect these instructions to jar our thinking, to challenge our desires and contradict normality the way we usually do things around here. If you're of the world, the sermon will seem outlandish and impractical. Man. And it's not uncommon even for us today to read the Sermon on the Mount and these words of Jesus in Luke 6 and basically say, this will never work, right? You can't run a country on this. This is simply unrealistic. And even though we may not say it, we show it in our actions. But I think we need to accept the prophetic teachings of Jesus because if what we are teaching isn't impractical to our world, then it's ultimately worldliness repackaged, right? If it doesn't challenge the ways of our world, then the way of our soci- and the way of our society, then, then what is it? So we have this call from Jesus not to be victims and not to be violent, but to live into this new kingdom vision. Jesus is saying, love must be stronger than hate. But the question then is, how? What is the motive behind enemy love. And Jesus starts fleshing this out in Luke 6, starting with verse 33 and on. It says this, and if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And then on to 35, it says, but love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. In other words, Jesus says your motive cannot be your understanding of love. It has to be motivated out of God's understanding of love. And thankfully, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is a complete redefinition of what love is to look like in action from God's perspective. But not only that, it's also the perfect description of what God's love looks like in action towards all of us, towards all humanity. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 13. It says this, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardships that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. So we hold this picture, this definition, along with this idea of loving our enemy. And it's important to note that it's part of the definition of God's real love because if we're being really honest, on our own, we are God's enemies. The scripture says we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we constantly choose to live a way of the world versus God's way. And the consequences of this is a broken relationship. It's death, it's separation from God, which is why we celebrate Easter. Because Easter is the celebration of God's unthinkable love in action for all of us, for all of humanity. 
the scripture says God demonstrates God's own love for all in this. While we were still sinners or while we were still God's enemy, Christ died for us. Colossians 2 says, when you were dead in your sins and in your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having uh, canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Amen? In other words, because of God's love perfectly expressed through Christ, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as it says in Romans. You see, the perfect picture of God's love in action is best seen in the other-centered, self-sacrificial love of Christ on the cross for the sins of all humanity. It's God's way of saying, I'm not only teaching you how to love all, but I'm going to show you it perfectly in action through the resurrection of Jesus. So what the resurrection then reveals is that God's love wins. It conquers Satan, it conquers sin, it conquers death. The resurrection reveals that love is stronger than hate. It's stronger than accusation and doubt. It's stronger than any threats and vengeance and enemies and hatred. It's stronger than ISIS and all terrorists put together. It's stronger than guns and bombs and all military powers combined. God's love is the strongest force in the universe, stronger than any pandemic It's utterly undefeatable and undestructible. It's unparalleled and unequal. It's unrivaled, and it can be measured against, uh, it can't be measured against anything. This is why when we trust in that power and love and live according to that power and love, it drives out all fear. And that's what it says in 1 John 4.18. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Perfect love drives out fear drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And if we trust in that, we are set free. And the scripture says, whom the son set free is free indeed. Why? Because as we receive God's love and begin to experience the depth of God's love, we become convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, no pandemics, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. This is some good news, One Life. And what's more is that this gift of the resurrection and God's incredible love is not just for you, and it's not just for me, It's a gift of grace for all who will receive it. Amen? And so at this point, uh, hopefully it's very clear that the example set before us in Christ is that love must be stronger than hate. But what do we do with all of this? What's the application for us today? And so to get at this, I have a couple things I want you to consider for self-reflection. If you have a notepad and you want to write these down, great. They shouldn't be too hard for you to remember either, but just in case. Um, The first thing I want you to be thinking about is this question. Have you opened yourself um, up to receive God's gift of unconditional love? Have you opened yourself up to receive it? 
Romans 6 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so, so with this question, I want us to pause just for a moment. I want you to kind of relax, look around, take a couple deep breaths. Just center yourself. And as you do this, I want you to know that you are experiencing an unconditional gift of grace as you take in those breaths. It's called the breath of life, and it's 100% full of resurrection power. You did nothing to earn it, and it's freely given to you whether you're paying attention to it or not at every second of your life. And here's the thing with this. You have a choice to make with that gift. You can pay attention to it and celebrate that you have a breath to breathe at every moment, just like we're trying to do right now. Or like many, you can allow it to give you life, but totally ignore it altogether, even though it's still being offered to you all the time. Or you can straight up close yourself off to it. You could plug your nose, you could close your mouth, which will ultimately lead to death. Now, the reason I say that is because now, like your breath, this gift of grace, this ultimate gift of love that comes from Jesus is very similar. It's constantly being freely offered to you with no strings attached. It's an other-centered, self-sacrificial love available to all humanity all the time. But like our breath, we can choose how we receive it. We can open ourselves up to it to let it in and to let it transform us with intentionality, making us new spirit-empowered people. Or we can let it in, but basically ignore it and go our day-to-day life mostly unaffected. Or we can flat out close ourselves off from receiving it, which again leads to death. So today, with this first question, whether you've been a follower of Christ for many years or if today is the first time you've ever considered the love of Christ, I want you to ponder how are you receiving the love of God in your day-to-day life? And maybe you could just let this be your prayer this morning no matter where you're at. God, I understand that I need your love just like I need air to breathe. So today I surrender all the distractions that keep me from being aware of the effects of your love in my life. Be it my own desires, fear, anxiety, pressures of life, all of it. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done for me. Today I open myself up to receive your free gift of unconditional love. Amen. Now, the second question to consider as a form of application is this, how are you being transformed by God's love and sharing it with others? Now this goes back to the meaning of Lent and the transformation that is to be springing forth as we go through the full process. As we open ourselves up to that love of God, as we let it in, it starts giving us new life, new perspective, and a new way of living motivated out of God's deep agape love, out of other-centered sacrificial care for all. 
Ephesians 5 says this, follow God's example, or other translations say, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Eugene Peterson translates this text wonderfully. It says this, watch what God does, and then you do it. Like children who learn proper behavior from their parents, Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious, but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. Second Corinthians chapter 5 Verses 16 and on says this, From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here, exclamation point. All is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you in Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. During this pandemic, I have been blown away and overwhelmed by the stories of people living out what it means to show other-centered sacrificial care be it calling the lonely and the vulnerable or helping others get food or resources they need. Maybe supporting local businesses, giving people rides to the doctor, making masks for others, providing care for those who are having to try handling dual incomes and juggle their kids, bringing meals to those who are in quarantine, people volunteering to be online tutors for One Life Tutoring or, or people serving on Monday and Wednesday nights for our dinner church at Magnuson Park or just those people who are being involved and plugged into our neighborhood care groups. One Life, this is, this is what our world needs more than ever. We need more ambassadors of Christ, imitators of the perfect example of love as seen in Jesus. And this is why we celebrate Easter. This is why we practice taking communion every week because it helps us remember the love of Christ. Much like when we pause to take a focused breath and how it helps us to give thanks for life. We make space to remember the love of God freely given to us through the work of Christ on the cross and the power of the resurrection. This helps us open ourselves up again to its transforming power, which allows the Holy Spirit to empower us to love others in the same way. And so as we get close to ending, how are you doing with this? How have you been empowered by the Spirit to love others well, to be ambassadors? And maybe you're just thinking about this for the very first time. Maybe you've been thinking about this a lot. No matter how you answer this question, maybe here's a prayer we could all pray. God, as I open myself up to your incredible love, I ask that you transform me to see others the way you do. Help me, Holy Spirit, to be compelled to love like you do. That my love would be stronger than hate and be an example of your love 
to others. Amen. Now, there's so much more we could talk about with this topic. Um, We don't have time to do that. But I hope you hear an invitation to let the unconditional love of Christ transform you, to transform us. And as we do, may God reveal to you ways to live this out in your daily life, especially in these days, um, because we could all use more examples of this deep agape love in action. With that, I'd like to invite Brian to come back. He's going to play instrumentally for a bit to allow us some space to ponder what we've discussed. Um, If you would be willing, on our website, we have an online connection card. And I'd love to hear what stood out to you today. Um, Any decisions that you made, especially if you opened yourself up to Christ for the very first time. Um, I would love to hear that. And I'd also love to hear any stories you have where you've seen examples of the love of Christ in your day-to-day life. That would be an awesome thing for us to hear. We can celebrate with you. Um, So please take a moment to do that. Um, As he plays, feel free to use the space to, to pray, to confess, to own, to give thanks, to receive, to be filled, to dream, whatever you feel called to in this time. Um, Please note as well that um, if you have any prayer needs, our prayer app is live. um, And by submitting your request, someone from our prayer team will be in touch. But there's also a live option to see someone face-to-face to to pray with you, and they would be honored to pray with and for you. I'm going to close our time with prayer. Then Brian will give us some space to reflect with some instrumental music. And then we're going to join together with one last song of response. And I encourage you to sing it out to allow it be your response today. But before we get there, let me pray. God, in this moment, um, as we breathe, we realize the incredible gift of grace and love it is to be alive. You constantly give us this gift and we did nothing to deserve it. And in the same way, today we remember your unconditional, other-centered, sacrificial love best seen in the resurrection of Jesus that we celebrate today. We celebrate that you are the true giver of life and of love and that it is stronger than anything in this world. God, we know we can't do this life on our own. We need you, Jesus. And so that we ask that you would help us be open to fully experiencing the transforming power of your spirit of love within us, giving us life at every moment. That we might be transformed and be something of the continued ripple effect of the resurrection, reaching outward to transform the world with your love. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.